Good morning, Barry. I am dialing in to chat to you from a very sad tier two London. I don't know if you've been keeping up to date with what's happening in the UK, but we're now in tier two. I can't have people, basically friends indoors, I can't meet indoors at all again. Uh, so yeah, quite a somber start to the episode, but uh, good morning. <laughs> I'm so sorry to hear that, Chad. That that really sucks, man. I think I was chatting to a friend of mine in Prague yesterday, and he was saying that Prague is a similar position. So I think a lot okay. of Europe are going through some sort of second wave at the moment, and London's one of those countries, unfortunately. So yeah, I'm just going to have to buckle down for a bit and go back yep. to that nomad lifestyle, that that, <laughs> that hermit in your house, um, and hopefully like, that won't last too long. Hopefully things will get back to back to normal pretty soon. On my side yeah. of the pond, Chad, I've had a really good week, and so I'm the sun is shining outside i'm in a really good oh. space and so i'm come to it with the opposite idea of, of <laughs> what the week was i'm really really happy to be here and good to see your face man well that's amazing welcome everyone yeah so glad you had a good week barry glad you're feeling nice and optimistic this morning it's always a good thing i mean I'm, i've still kept the optimistic air about me right we're not gonna let good Good. We're not going to let it get us down, are we? Um, and it's not <laughs> quite as bad as our first lockdown that we had, uh, you know, back in April, March, whenever it was. It's all been a bit of a blur, really. Um, so, yeah, we can at least appreciate the things that we are still able to do while they're still there. Who knows if it's going to be for very long, though. Don't you think it's crazy that we're almost at the end of October, Chad? Yeah. Like, how nuts has 2020 been? And the fact that we're in, like, mid-October towards late October is just crazy to think about. And that, that thing of being a blur is absolutely right. Like, that's the way it yeah. feels. It feels like this whole year has just melded into this weird blob that we're going to call 2020. It's weird. It's so true. And, I mean, not just that, Barry, but the fact that we are three episodes away from one year of Across the Pond episode yes, recording please. 52 <laughs> we've three episodes away i cannot fathom that dude i'm so proud of us like let's just take a moment to like <laughs> tap ourselves on the back the fact yeah. that we've been able to do this consistently week after week after week for almost a year is really incredible yeah. and i mean i've had an absolute blast i i'll be honest when we started i wasn't sure how things were going to go <laughs> i wasn't sure how long we'd be able to keep it up um i'm we both want we both those kind of people we love starting new projects yeah. but we struggle yeah. sometimes to get <laughs> to the finish line um, but we've managed to keep ourselves accountable we've managed to kind of keep consistent and that's been really exciting and long made content Continue, Chad. Exactly. And things are just getting easier as well. The whole process. I must be honest, we chatted a little bit about it a few weeks ago, kind of offline, Barry. But the, the kind of editing and I suppose the whole process of that used to take me ages. And I've now got it down <laughs> to fine art, you know, basically set up a whole template that I can edit everything to. And it makes such a big difference in making this project sustainable, really. Yeah, definitely. I think as you as you go along, you learn how to make things faster and faster yeah. and more efficient. And you learn about all the duplicate work that you're doing without realizing yeah. it, right? So, so much of our process from all the way from show notes before the episode, right through to your editing towards the end yeah. of the process. The more we can get it fine-tuned and the less kind of stress we put on it, it means this thing becomes more sustainable because you don't have to spend so much time going through all the nitty-gritty. And so I'm really excited to hear that. I think the quality is still great. The video looks good. The, the sound is great. And so we're really looking forward to another 52 episodes as we move forward into what hopefully will be year two of a really exciting journey. Absolutely. Well, all we need then, Barry, is for the algorithm to decide it likes us. <laughs> uh, but until that happens, we're just going to plow on. So let's get on to the week that was. The week that was. Oh, Barry, we had a big week and we did not do a special edition episode this time because, uh, I mean, there were two announcements, whereas the last one really warranted it, I feel. Uh, you know, we had quite a lot going on. We had the Apple Watch, we had some Apple subscriptions, we had all sorts of other stuff. And this last week, we had the big unveiling, which has been long anticipated. I've been waiting for it for a while. And that is the new iPhone event. So, Barry, were you looking forward to this one? Chad, I was looking forward to it, and unfortunately, I didn't get to watch it live because it was my birthday yeah. on the day, and so I was with family and friends at that time, but I watched the, the highlights, of course, because with every new iPhone, it's such an exciting experience. Apple has this way of making these things really, really interesting and really intriguing, and the iPhone, I, in my opinion, still remains the premier smartphone in the world, and so when they release a new iPhone with lots of new features, and you kind of see where the industry is going and like what the premium type products are going to look like, and also, it's always a, a bit of a shocked to see what pricing they're going to put on these brand new yes. premium products so <laughs> so there's lots to talk about and iphone 12 is in the wild basically which is quite exciting 
Yeah, really exciting. Let's just not just skip over that mere little fact that Barry is one year older. We completely didn't acknowledge <laughs> it on Across the Pond. I completely missed it myself, even on a personal side. Um, so happy birthday, Barry. Are you feeling Are you feeling wiser? Thank you, Chad. I do feel a little <laughs> bit wiser. I, I also feel this a little good. bit more crickety. Um, I, about a day or so <laughs> after my birthday, I, I tweaked a hamstring at cricket, and Ooh. I was like, oh, no, is this what old age is? Um, and so every now and then, the, the muscles let you know that you are a little bit older, Chad. Uh, but, but feeling good. Um, almost at 30, which is quite a terrifying thought. Um, but what can we do, right? Almost, but not quite there yet, Barry. You're still a spring chicken <laughs> for now. And I was wondering why there was that foam roller in the background over there. Now it makes oh. sense. Now it all makes sense. Okay, so let's get into it. We've got the new iPhone 12 in the wild. Big release happening last week from Apple. Basically, this new iPhone has been dubbed the beginning of a new era. And that is the era of 5G. We've had conspiracy theories going like crazy. <laughs> it's infiltrated into even the closest of my friends group, funny, funny enough. And, uh, you know, people just not sure what to believe when we've got this uh, vaccine that's potentially coming out. I've heard some crazy theories. Uh, but anyway, 5G is certainly, certainly going to change the game uh, in terms of the speeds that you can actually access uh, on your mobile devices. I mean, based on this Apple event, we've seen sort of downloads of four gigabits per second, which I cannot believe, and uploads of 200 megabits per second coming from a little handset that you can hold in your hand. Yeah, it's one of those things that 5G has been around for a while, but the devices haven't been ready for it, right? So yep. people have been talking about its potential, talking about some of those speeds that you're saying. Now that these devices are ready to utilize it and leverage it to the best of what's possible, it really opens up a whole new world of possibility. And like you say, yep. it feels like the start of a new era. It feels like a new kind of connection to bandwidth, like going from dial-up to Wi-Fi, going from Wi-Fi just to something to LTE, <laughs> etc. It yep. feels like one of those monumental shifts. And of course, the conspiracy theories will throw a lot of mud in the water, but if you if you if you kind of ignore those for the second, yep. the, the technology itself is revolutionary, and the kind of speeds that you're talking about could change everything. And 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 the way that it gets built out is going to be very very important. Now, of course, Apple have a lot to say in this regard. The iPhones are everywhere, and so the moment you get like true 5G optimized phones in the hands of millions and millions of consumers around the world, then you start to see what is what is possible with this new tech. Absolutely, and I mean, just talking about it being kind of ready but not on the ground apple kind of adopted this slogan really of 5g just got real and uh, i mean I, I thought that was quite effective because you're right i mean having one of the big dominant players now actually finally adopting it in their handsets um really makes it kind of a bit more of a statement and obviously we've seen all of the talks you know about trump and huawei and, and all of the rest of it and it really does look like the u.s is gearing up based on this event uh, they had one of their carriers on the actual event, and that is Verizon. The CEO of Verizon came up, came on as well, and they were really looking at the coverage of this. And I mean, based on the the graphs that I saw, they really are going big at this. You have to, right? In order to get this to work, you have to have lots of infrastructure spend, and you have to make sure the coverage is, is all around the all around the country, at least in the US, and hopefully the world eventually. And it's one of those things where 5G relies on that infrastructure to make it work, because a lot of it is point-of-sight type connections, and that's how you get some of the amazing speeds. And so, yeah, it's very important that Apple really work closely with these providers to make sure that when you buy the phone, you think that you're going to get 5G, and all of a sudden in your little town in the middle of Arizona, you're not getting the coverage you wanted, that looks very bad on, on Apple, because a a lot of people yep. don't understand the connection between companies. So getting Verizon CEO on that stage is very important to kind of show this is a partnership, this is an ecosystem that you're buying into yep. once again, and Definitely. it's important to get that those connections right in order to really unleash the potential here. 100%, yeah. Um, it is always just interesting when they choose one particular carrier, you kind of wonder about the rest. Is this the Apple preferred carrier? Um, but like you say, you know, when it comes to these types of partnerships, really important just to get the messaging out there, especially when it is one of the dominating uh, carriers out there in the US. So let's briefly touch on, you know, some of the new things in the iPhone. I know when we have been kind of preempting this event, Barry, we always talk about them just adding new cameras because what else can you do <laughs> these days, right? Just add a new camera. Yeah. Um, so obviously 5G being the big story. And uh, I mean, I'm really excited about that. I think I've mentioned it on the podcast before, the incredibly low data prices that I'm paying uh, on my package. And it's actually 5G unlimited capable. So as soon as you've got that extra band, you know, you can take full advantage of these packages, uh, certainly here out here in the UK. And I'm really looking forward to that. But let's look at some of the other features. So we've now got an iPhone phone 12 mini so i know previously there was a, a se 
but it was kind of like a few generations behind it felt you know it had some of the older components in it older design now they've basically brought this mini line into the actual lineup of this year's model which i found quite interesting you've got the normal iphone 12 and you've got the pro models so across the lineup what we're seeing is we're seeing slightly bigger screens so essentially the panel underneath it is an oled panel which i have on my 10s max but it, they basically have a new panel it's called the xdr display super retina xdr and that looks really incredible they've upped the essentially resolution on these panels. So there's more pixels within every kind of square inch of the display. We're talking of PPI is what they call it, uh, 460. Now it's quite a significant improvement over the previous generation. So obviously you've got richer, sharper colors, uh, you know, essentially all you want on the device that you carry with you all of the time and the brightness of the display as well, even better. So basically that new covering of glass barrier is stronger. It's a new material that they're calling ceramic shield. And I don't know about you, but I know loads of people who have dropped their phones that are brand new, a, year, a week or two old even, and the screen just cracks. Devastating stuff. It's so heartbreaking to see that. And it brings to mind a video I watched, I think it was like the iPhone 5 or 6 or something. There was a, a release in Australia and there was this news crew were looking, it was doing a, a story <laughs> on people queuing outside there yeah. at the iStore to get their new phones. Yeah. And I remember the first person who came out of the new phone and the <laughs> reporter got them out and he was so excited because he got his hands on the very first one. And as he opened the box, he opened it the wrong way around and it fell and cracked on live TV. <laughs> and it was, it was an absolutely hilarious moment. And you saw that, you saw the look on his face that we all understand when we crack our phones. Yes. It's like, no. <laughs> um, and so it's such an important piece of it. It's such a, like a, it it's an understated important factor. The fact that we do drop our phones and we do all sorts of weird and wonderful things with them because we're carrying with the, uh, them with us all the time. And so the more robust it can be, the better. And so hopefully this is an improvement, Chad. Hopefully it means that you aren't, like you say, breaking your phone three weeks in and then wondering, why didn't I get that Apple Care Plus? Why didn't I spend the extra money, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. And this glass is supposed to be four times less likely to, to crack. Better drop performance is what they call it. And when I first <laughs> met you, Barry, when we went into that, uh, that R&B room to work with our group, I noticed that Barry adopted the very minimal approach. He didn't have a cover <laughs> on his phone. And I was like, no, this man's living on the edge. So I'm sure you're going to quite enjoy that feature. Chad, I don't know why this is the most controversial piece of my personality, but everyone brings it up. I still don't have a, I still don't have a case. My phone okay. has been caseless for years now, Chad, and I'm still wow. going strong, touch wood. And so, yes, I live on the edge, and it'll give me more comfort to know that this is four times less likely to break because I like the aesthetic. I like the thinness. I don't want to add anything to it. And so this is good news for me, Chad. I th that's the thing. I find it so important when they design something to look that way, to feel that way, as soon as you put a cover on it, you completely change the dynamic. And don't even get me started about putting a screen protector on, Barry. It completely, <laughs> completely alters the quality of what you're actually getting out of that screen. Do you sit on the same side of this debate? I feel like I don't feel about it as strongly as you do, Chad, oh. but I'm on your side. Don't you worry. I'm on your <laughs> side. I can hear in your voice the absolute kind of passion behind this topic. Um, I think that yeah, it, it, it's one of those things where you spend so much money on this phone, which they've put so much effort into making it look really sleek and really perform well. And then you're going and buying a $5 case and you're putting it on top and a screen protector exactly. and all of these accessories that like just destroy the aesthetic of it. And so as an Apple fanboy myself, I like the fact that it can just be itself and with with better screens and more robust capabilities hopefully you can drop it three or four times during its lifetime and it won't crack that's the hope at least exactly well yeah 100 i agree you're just cheapening this uh really premium handset by, by doing that uh, so if you do that i'm not a fan personally but uh you know you do you you do you okay so basically like i said we've got the mini uh, which I think we'll we'll kind of end up our discussion on right now, but I think it is an important thing to to kind of just touch on Barry because basically I was chatting to a friend the other day who had just read this book and it's called Invisible Woman by Caroline Criado Perez. I hope I said that correctly. <laughs> and essentially, it deals with uh, basically how a lot of what we do on a day-to-day -day basis and the objects that we use in the world is designed around men. A lot of things are not actually uh, designed thinking about women. Um, and so I kind of wonder, one of the examples that they give in that book is smartphones, that a lot of smartphones these days are, are not designed around women. Um, so yeah, I kind of wonder whether this is Apple addressing that concern, 
or just catering to people who like smaller phones. That's interesting. It really is interesting. I think that it is it's very true that tech and engineering in general is very male-dominated. And so when you have a lot of guys who are designing a product, they're obviously going to come at it from their perspective, right? Yeah. And if you don't have the female perspective, I can understand there's, there's concerns like that. And this is a, a, an idea I've never even thought about, and that's maybe because I'm male, right? And so yeah. it's one of those things where we need to have diversity in the way we design these things, and this is, this is a great example of, of something like that. On the other side of the coin, I also would prefer a, a smaller phone, to be honest, Chad. Okay especially if it can give me the same capability. I think for a lot of the smaller phones that, that Apple's done in the past, the SE versions and whatnot, they kind of are lesser, lesser capable than, yep. than just being a smaller form factor. Well, as far as I understand, the, the, this new iPhone mini, it's going to be very much a high quality, like top premium performance, just in a smaller form factor. And so if that's the case, then that's the kind of phone that I would be looking at because these Maxes and these Pros are getting bigger and bigger and bigger, it feels like, every <laughs> single year. And yep. it's nice to have the option to kind of pick your form factor, especially if you're not doing crazy performance, you're not doing crazy computations. If you're just looking for a point-and-shoot camera, something to do your Instagram on and your WhatsApp, then it might make sense to go for a smaller, a smaller form factor. So I'm quite excited to see what it looks like and like feel it in my hands in the Apple store when it finally gets here. And then we'll be able to get a sense as to what are they trying to accomplish with a device like this. Yeah, exactly. And I don't know about you, Barry, but if you've ever gone for like an upgrade in screen size in the past, on the first day, it feels like, wow, I've got so much more screen. I can do so much more. I can see so much more. And then it just becomes normal. And then you don't kind of appreciate that extra size. You don't even you know, take full use of it. I don't know, have you felt the same thing? Definitely. I mean, remember the bezel conversation when they started going fuller and fuller yep. screens and less around the edges? The, the whole, All the conversation was about how big the bezel was and how, how small the bezel was, sorry, and how like it was going to impact your screen size. But within two weeks, like you say, everyone forgets and everyone yep. just lives as if this was the normal the whole way along. <laughs> so, so much of this is once the novelty wears off, you get so used to your phone, you get so used to using it that all that stuff kind of fades into the background. And so it's it's one of those it's one of the pros and cons of being like tech heads where we're so excited about these new features, but two weeks later, all of a sudden, some of them don't feel as as real anymore, which is yeah. weird. Exactly. Okay, so let's look on the kind of processing side, the piece that I guess gets us excited, Barry. Obviously, there's loads of tech specs. We're going to skip over those, but they've got a new chip in these new iPhones. They're called the A14 Bionics, and essentially, I am staggered to see how many cores they've got. In terms of CPUs, GPUs, uh, there's like a neural learn learning engine which is catered for machine learning. And essentially what we're seeing now is the switch over to gaming from smartphones. Obviously 5G helps this. Um, and basically we saw what I think to be quite a intentional move on Apple's side. They brought on as a partner as well League of Legends. Very, very popular game, uh, obviously in the esports arena. We talk about the, the kind of idea of gaming pros and people actually training to be pros from the, their <laughs> smartphone. And obviously, you've got, you've got people, a lot of young people who are, have grown up watching these games on massive arenas and are kind of aspire uh, to be able to compete on that kind of level. Um, and so I thought it was very intentional because obviously we've got the epic battle that's happening at the moment with Epic Games, right? Um, and so what more of a kind of FU to, to bring a partnership uh, with, a, with a gaming uh, platform that is happy to pay commissions to Apple? Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a real, real piece of office politics and like a real like game, <laughs> game theory here. And because the Epic Battle, of course, it went to court and it got struck out of court about three or four yep. days ago. So the timing is perfect. <laughs> and like you say, it, it's, it's one of those things where Apple is just showing its power and its strength by being able to say, cool, if you don't want to be on our platform, we'll just go to your competitor and we'll just pick them and make them our preferred provider. Um, so it really is an interesting piece of game theory. Apple, of course, holds all the bargaining chips here because they control exactly. the ecosystem. And that's one of the major parts of why they're so successful It's because they can get away with whatever they want because they control that ecosystem. And they've built this brand and these, these super fans around the world that will just keep loyal to their brand no matter what. Talking about the chip, Chad, the chip yeah. is incredible. <laughs> I mean, if you think about the fact that there's more processing power on that chip than there was in like pro laptops, say four or five years ago, yeah. and, and you hold it in your hand, it's yeah. absolutely insane. And like you say, when you combine it with faster bandwidth, the opportunities here are just unreal. If you were to go back to Steve, I, wa I wonder if Steve Jobs could see what phones yeah. look like today and compare it to, like, say, the first iPhone back in 2007 and compare the two. I wonder if he could have predicted what kind of power and performance these phones would be able to get to. Because if you were to take 
just talk to someone 50 years ago, they would never have believed you if you told them some of the specs and some of the ideas that are coming out today. So it's a really exciting time to be in tech. I don't think we've ever had a better time in history to yep. look at technology, and it keeps getting better and better and better. It really does. And while I was watching this event, Barry, I got this feeling that Apple has kind of not just caught up, but accelerated the rest of the market, essentially. If you spoke to any tech head friends of yours in the past, they would always be able to find some kind of competitor that on paper has better specs. And it's always been the kind of integration of software and hardware that has been the key differentiator for Apple. Whereas I honestly feel like they are now coming out with, on paper, the best tech there is out there, um, which for me has been quite a change in pace to watch. Yeah, definitely. I think that the, the smartphone wars have just accelerated and intensified in ways we couldn't imagine, right? And like you say, like all the competitors that have caught up from the early iPhone days when Apple had a huge lead, and yeah. a lot of smartphones, say in the last two or three years, have been quite similar. If you look at the top end, Samsung or Huawei's or all of those modes, they've been quite close to Apple. But Apple has this way of just continually pushing the boundaries and continually pushing what is possible on their devices, and, and like you say, with the integrations as well. And I think it's one of the main reasons that they can afford to hire the very best engineers in the world. If you're an engineer coming out of a top university right now, Apple is, a, is the place to work, right? If you want to go and like make real change in consumer products. And so they have this advantage of being able to suck in the best talents in the world, pay them really well because their premium pricing means their, their business is imminently profitable. Definitely. And there's a reason they are the number one tech company in the world. And there's a reason they're pushing boundaries every single time. We, we kind of spoke a couple of weeks ago, Chad, about potentially the smartphone market kind of plateauing a little bit. And we chatted about how things maybe kind of maybe need a bit of a change up. And yeah. I wonder if these sorts of announcements and these sorts of improvements in performance are going to open up the gates to new innovations like we were chatting about. And I, for one, am excited to see what developers make with all this new power that's at their disposal. Completely agree. And it's especially that kind of m machine learning component of the chip that I'm quite excited about. Now, let's move on to some of the next kind of big news of this event. Obviously, we, we kind of preempted some developments about cameras, and obviously that becomes quite important uh, to us as we use our phones on a day-to-day -day basis. And that is, I'd say, part of the big news of this event. So obviously, the specs vary widely depending on which particular model you're going to go for, whether it's the Pro or just the normal, the Mini, etc. Um, but I, I do want to talk about this idea of computational photography. And that is something that we literally spoke about last week, <laughs> Barry. We spoke about this and I said to you, potentially one day in the future, you'll be able to churn through a photo that's, you know, okay, taken from an okay camera into some sort of AI and get it to process it, compute essentially the results and, and uh, I guess, output something that is much, much better, crisper, clearer, and just better altogether. So that's what they rolled out in this, in this uh, new iPhone. Essentially, you're going to take a photo and it's not just going to go from your lens into your little photos folder. It's going to go through a whole lot of processing barrier before it does that. Uh, I don't even comprehend all of the kind of stuff that's happening over here in the back end, uh, but quite a lot of integration with this machine learning chip. It's quite amazing, Chad. It feels like photography is moving from an art to more of a science, right? Or at yep. least a mix of the two. As we start to uncover some of the potential that comes from computational photography, I think we forget when we look at a picture that all it is is just colored dots, right? It's just pixels of color that we then yep. arrange in certain ways to make a picture look like what it, what it looks like. And the way that we can kind of adapt that and adjust that and, and learn some principles about what makes for better photos and then build software for that, it's just going to make our photos even better. I mean... I didn't think the quality of photos could get better from what we see today. <laughs> Some of the stuff we see is absolutely insane, yeah, right? So the crispness, the, the, the color, it's, it's, it's really is a golden age of photography. And it just keeps getting better and better, like you say. And the more we're able to do to give like the average person that ability to do it through software without having to spend 30,000 Rand on a fancy lens, right? The yep. more we can be able to give it to the average consumer, the photos we're gonna be able to take are just gonna be even more insane. And so like you say, we don't understand all the technical stuff. There's so much behind the scenes here. It really is a science that's been built behind photography. And I, for one, am excited about what's going to come out of it. Because all of a sudden, Chad, anybody with a phone in their pocket can take the kind of photo that yep. five years ago would require 
tons and tons of equipment, which is really cool. Exactly. And it is that rolling out to the average consumer, which is why they've kind of rolled it out in all of the models, uh, which I think, like you said, is going to make a massive difference to all of our Instagram feeds. We're going to just be looking <laughs> at better and better stuff all the time, which is going to be great. But now let's touch on the pro model, right? So who buys the pro model? What does it give you? And more, more big news on the camera front, Barry. I cannot believe the kind of stuff that this phone can do. Essentially, <laughs> what you're now going to be able to do on this phone is record 10-bit HDR video on your phone. In you know, it's just staggering to be able to have that level of quality. I spent quite a lot of money on a camera in the last couple of weeks <laughs> uh, that basically records at those kind of bit rates. Um, so to be able to have that on your phone that's with you all the time, they've added what is essentially in-body stabilization into the iPhone. So you've got a sensor that's bigger, that captures more light, it's going to be clearer. And that sensor shifts depending on how you move your hands, those micro jitters, all that kind of stuff. The sensor counteracts that movement uh, to be able to stabilize the footage. So really, really pro-level features uh, in this pro model, uh, which I'm quite impressed by. It's, it blows your mind, really, if you think <laughs> about it, because it's going to give you cinema quality production, right? It's going to yep. give you cinema quality production value in something you can hold in your hand. And that, that just blows away. I think iPhone has been like number one in video for a long time when it comes to smartphones. Their, their video production quality is really, really good. And so for things like creative expression, when it comes to YouTubers, when it comes to people making home films, when it comes to yep. even people doing more expansive short films and that sort of thing, the iPhone is going to become that incredible portable cinema camera exactly. that you can take with you everywhere and get those shots that you that you won't necessarily want to lug all your, your equipment around for. So the bit rate is incredible. The, the fact that you can get four Okay, at, at the same time, like we're yep. getting that kind of real, real crisp quality. It's going to make videos even better. And uh, the question for me, Chad, is how much storage is all this going to take up when I take yep. my videos? Yep. When we do our tent bit across the pond for recordings, <laughs> is my phone going to be able to handle it? Um, but I'm assuming it will. And, and it, it, it again comes at a faster and faster pace that these things get better and better every single year. Well, this is the whole thing is Apple have basically... Uh, they've come up with like a compression uh, algorithm, essentially, which is going to make these files a lot smaller. Um, but kind of the flip side of that coin is when it comes to editing any of this footage, it's impossible uh, because you essentially <laughs> need to to like decode it right before it can become workable. Um, and so we have these discussions about proxy footage. Barry, you worked on some of that the other day, uh, where essentially you, you render out kind of clips just to edit. Um, just so that your computer can actually handle you even editing because these <laughs> files are, you know, big, but not just big. They have a lot of compression in them, which is also so important. And to address that as well, uh, Apple have increased the, the starting storage model uh, size to 128 gigabytes. Now, do you remember the days where you could buy a 16 gigabyte iPhone? <laughs> I do. I think my first iPhone was 16 gigabytes. And at the time, <laughs> I thought that was amazing. I thought yeah. that was a, a lot of space, right? <laughs> and nowadays, 16 gigs, you'd barely get WhatsApp on your phone, right? You need like way more than that. I've certainly been running into some storage issues on my phone even today. So I'm quite excited to see that coming down the pipe. Yeah. And I think the days of yeah, 16, 52, even yeah, 128, it's gonna be, you're going to need a lot more than that for all of this new like fancy stuff that's coming down the pipe. So true. Okay, the last thing I want to talk about, Barry, I know we've been rambling for a little bit, is this LiDAR sensor. So when I got my iPad Pro earlier this year, we spoke a little bit about that. And, you know, although it sounds really cool, you can basically create a 3D depth map using this extra sensor that they've added to the back of the Pro model. Um, essentially, the, the use case for it has always been a little bit murky. What are you going to actually use this thing for? A lot of people said it was for, uh, you know, interior designers that they can actually virtually place items of furniture in rooms that they're in, um, which I think still is a very compelling use case, but that doesn't work for everyone. Uh, similarly, another use case was to, to do kind of augmented reality games, uh, which also is a cool use case, but not for everyone. But what they've done in my mind is applied this in the perfect, perfect way. And that is to actually use the LiDAR sensor to get focus as a focus scanner. And so you can get focus uh, for your photography six times faster using a LiDAR scanner than when your camera has to kind of hunt 
hunt for focus. Uh, and obviously, you know, the results of that is just going to be so much better for anyone using their cameras. Especially for those moments where you need to capture a shot quickly and you're taking your phone exactly. out of your pocket, you're desperately trying to get the app open because something is happening you want to capture and you don't want to wait that extra half a second or second for that focus to get right. So it really is exciting. It's a great example of kind of thinking out of the box and like looking at, okay, we've got this LiDAR sensor, like you say, it's very powerful. What the hell do we use it for? <laughs> yeah, and exactly. trying to be creative and thinking from first principles as to what kind of potential can it open up? And this is a great example. Like you, Chad, I've also been waiting for augmented reality to come and it still doesn't feel like it's here. It's kind of yep. been talked about for so long and nothing has really materialized just yet. And so hopefully this is a great example of what the sensor can do and can maybe make people think a bit more creatively about what's, what's the potential here. So that's really exciting. Yeah, completely. The last thing that they discussed, Barry, which they actually started out with, was basically their lineup into smart homes. Now, we saw the HomePod being released. I don't know, was it last year? Was it the year before? It kind of was a, a bit of a non-starter in my mind because it was released and it had so much potential. But I think the price point of this thing was just out of everyone's reach. Uh, ultimately, it sounds amazing. We all know that. Siri is really good. But it's just not an affordable device, which I think is the reason why it, it really just was a bit of a non-starter. The absolute enthusiasts rolled them out and they had them throughout their homes, um, those who, who could afford it. Uh, but everyone else looked for cheaper alternatives and there were loads of cheaper alternatives. So what they have now done is released the HomePod Mini which for me, I think is going to be the sweet spot. I think it's still going to have, obviously, we, we need to get into the same room as this thing and see what it sounds like, uh, but it's <laughs> going to be smaller, hence the name Mini. Um, but I still think you're going to be able to get enough sound out of it. And the price point is really compelling. It's $99. I think a lot more people will be able to afford this and have sort of two or three of them scattered throughout their home, which is really what you want, uh, rather than having one very, very loud one kind of at the center of your home. What are your thoughts? I think you're spot on there, Chad. I think you're spot on. I think that Apple were losing this battle to the Amazon Echo type ecosystem, right? The yep. Amazon Echo products were really, really good and they were at the right price points and they were like that they kind of dominated the market. And so Apple needed to make a move like this to try and compete in this kind of world. I'm quite excited about it, Chad, because the Amazon ecosystem is not that big here in South Africa. So when you're yep. trying to do a smart home here in Joburg, it doesn't really make sense because you can't unlock some of the benefits because of the Amazon Prime stuff and yep. kind of the Alexa stuff. Whereas a Siri integration is much more likely to have use cases here for us. So I'm quite excited about this product. I'm hoping that the price doesn't get crazy with customs here on this <laughs> side of the pond. Yeah. Um, but it's the kind of price point that makes it more affordable, and like you say, and it makes it more practical as a potential like addition to your smart home. So I think it's the right move. Like you say, the, the speaker quality is what we have to watch out for and see like, how good that is. But assuming that that's decent and assuming that the Siri integration works well, I think this could become a really good product for them and, and, and help them to compete with Amazon in the smart home space. Yeah, I completely agree. And based on just the models that I saw of the design of the speaker, I can see they've used a, a bass driver in the middle and two passive radiators, uh, which essentially also add to your to your bass. So one of my devices, this side, has two passive radiators as well. And the kind of level of sound that I get from it is ridiculous. So uh, basically what I've seen, uh, I think we're going to get a really good device here at, uh, I suppose, the right kind of price. I think it's, it's taught them a level not to overprice themselves. Even though they are Apple, there is still you know that market out there. <laughs> ultimately and uh, that is out there for a reason people are going to set the the kind of market price and uh, people are willing and able to pay what they are willing and able to pay so that i think wraps up all of our discussions on the apple event uh, quite a big one and like always barry these things are going to be in stores fairly quickly. They have to be, right? They have to be. You've got to capture all the excitement at that moment. So it's this weird game where you're trying to avoid leaking the information right up to the day until you announce it, and then you want to be ready to go as quickly as possible. We've chatted about supply chain concerns in the past, yep. so hopefully they're ready for that. Hopefully they're ready for the demand. We have to wait and see what kind of sales they get on these devices and whether they're able to produce as quickly as they need to. Of course, COVID throws a whole spanner in the works, but I would never it. bet against Apple. For some reason, whenever they bring out a new product those sales figures are through the roof and so i don't think it's going to be any different here and i'm excited to get them in my hands and see what they feel like in stores chad exactly and we didn't even talk about the pacific blue model which oh <laughs> i'm in love with <laughs> nevertheless let's move on to some other stuff that happened this past week barry you found an article that uh, was buried in the web and i kind of <laughs> i was kind of ignoring it because i saw it come up and i was quite ashamed by it to be honest and that is the idea of excel when Excel goes wrong, 
Uh, talk us through what happened here. <laughs> Chad, we, we can't let you get away with it. We often talk about South Africa's problems, and the UK can sound like a like the grass sounds green on that side, but it doesn't yep. always get it right. Chad. <laughs> and like you said, Excel was the the culprit here, but not really the culprit. I think it was the human who was using the Excel that exactly. was the culprit. Yep. Um, so quite a serious topic, but I found it quite amusing just because I've been through a lot of those scenarios when I've been working where Excel goes wrong and where Excel kind of leads <laughs> to some dangerous consequences if you aren't careful. Exactly. Um, and basically, what happened is that the UK COVID testing uh, system, which is using Excel for their database, which I don't understand, but they're using Excel <laughs> for this. And uh, apparently they temporarily mis... Uh, I, li I like the way they spin this. They say they temporarily mislaid 16,000 COVID <laughs> test results because Gosh. when they were, they were importing a CSV file into another version of Excel and they didn't notice that they'd hit the maximum column count. So they were using an out, uh, well, they were transferring to a different version, and they didn't realize that they had too many columns to go into this particular version of Excel, and so they lost sixteen thousand <laughs> test results. Chad, it's crazy, um, and it's absolutely crazy, and it's one of those things where you wonder. In hindsight, you're like, of course, why didn't I check that? <laughs> but at the time, obviously, the deadlines are happening, things are going crazy, and you move the CSV file across, you don't have the right backup or whatever the story is, and poof, that data is gone. And for something as serious as coronavirus, Chad, it doesn't put the UK in a good light. No, it definitely doesn't. And I'm actually glad you brought it up here, Barry, because I think it is an important one. And I guess it's just that, that extra kind of scrutiny on the fact that no matter what it is we're looking at, there's always that human element there, and there's always a risk yep. that something can go wrong. And uh, something like this, like you say, maximum column count. I know there's different versions of Excel files, and with every new kind of year of version, they introduce extra columns and extra rows. Uh, but I've certainly worked with large data sets where you reach the, the, the bottom of a row count, thousands of tens of thousands of, of lines, ultimately. And, you know, you have to think about how you can narrow that data set down to something a bit more practical. I would have thought they would have thought about that, though. You would have thought so, Chad. I mean, I, when I did a computer science course a couple of months ago, that was one of the key kind of criteria of computer science is understanding where your limits are yeah. and understanding like how much memory do you have? How much space do you have? How, how big can your database get? How many variables can you actually ac accommodate? Yep. And so that's one of the key pieces of any kind of database design is understanding exactly where those limits are so that you don't get these weird anomalies happening right at the edge of your data. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's obviously a mistake that was made. Um, the person must feel terrible about it and it must be like a really, really tough position to be in because the UK is under such scrutiny right now because of the COVID numbers. And so you want your testing data to be authentic and you want it to be as accurate as possible and to not have this kind of uh, doubt shone on it. Because now you wonder what else has gone wrong, right? When something like this happens, you start thinking about what other mistakes could have been made and is this data as legit as we yeah. thought it was? Exactly. And so that's the danger here. And so I'm assuming they're going through a huge audit process to try and figure out what went wrong, how to stop it, and kind of what potential mistakes could be hiding somewhere else. But it's a reminder to all of us that don't just take data on face value. They're, like you said, the human error is part of all of life. Exactly. And we have to remember that. We have to be able to keep skeptical and keep our, our minds open to potential mistakes that could then shift the way things look. Absolutely. Just a crazy story. And whenever you look at a graph now coming out of the UK, you wonder, is that spike <laughs> real? Is that dip really real? Or is that just missing rows? Who knows? Um, but we'll certainly see what happens in the future. On the same topic, Barry, some news coming out of China in terms of a positive potential vaccine. Yeah, definitely. So, of course, the vaccine race is on and everyone around the world is trying to get their vaccine ready. And so there's lots of positive, lots of good news coming out of it. And it's really good to see because I think we are getting closer to some sort of usable vaccine. Today we're chatting about the one in China. So I don't have much information because, of course, China is shrouded in mystery. So it's very hard to know what's going on. But from the reports that I've read, China has a vaccine seen that they've been testing quite extensively and it's been showing very positive signs of providing neutral anti antibodies for the virus in whoever they inject it into. So that's really good to hear and most specifically they've seen really good results better than expected in people over the age of 60 which okay. is really good. We've chatted in the past about how people over the age of 60 are at more risk to kind of dying to the virus than say the younger generation. So to see those kind of results is really good and of course it's not a panacea yet, it's not completely finished yet but really good signs coming out of it. Of course, we don't want to trust China. So what's happened is that they're now going to do a third stage clinical trial in the UAE to try and give a little bit more neutral kind of scientists a, a look okay. at it and get a sense as to whether this is kind of proving the results that they think it is. And if it is, Chad, it's going to be really good news for the, for the world. So I'm holding thumbs for it. I hope this is the one. Um, but 
really good news that side. I really do wonder what happens if that is the case, if everyone drops everything and just lets China produce this at a mass level, or whether everyone kind of keeps their, their vaccine trials running because you have to ultimately look at the, the commercial side of this as well. Yeah, definitely. That's going to be the big discussion, and there's lots of conspiracy theories in that realm, Chad, about yeah. who's going to be producing these vaccines. How do you do it at a scale that's necessary? Like the production quality and the production scale is going to be immense. And so it's very easy, to, well, not, not easy, but it's easier to do a clinical trial when you're testing 200 patients and you've got to prove its efficacy throughout that. It's a whole different story when you're trying to produce millions and millions and millions of this vaccine. Yeah. And like you say, there's going to be lots and lots of ethical dilemmas about where's your vaccine made, how do you trust it, how do you make sure the production process doesn't have any mistakes in it, and that's uh, what's to come, Chad, a lot of these discussions. Fascinating stuff. What kind of crazy world are we living in? Uh, but yeah, hopefully that is some good news, and uh, I really do hope that that goes over the line uh, to uh, you know help us get back to normal as soon as possible. Last thing we want to chat about this week, Barry, is talking about the releasing of new films. We've obviously seen cinema chains around the world really, really struggling. Uh, some of them not even, even have opened their doors at the moment. Some people open but struggling to get that foot traffic in. And another major release deciding to go a different way. Yeah, big, big news in this continuing debate and this continuing discussion. And this is Disney, right? Disney is one of those ginormous players in this game. They're going to have a lot of say in where the future of cinema goes. And they've decided that their brand new Pixar film, which I think is going to be released in 2021, which is called Soul, their brand new kind of blockbuster film they're hoping to do really well, it's not going to go to cinemas at all, Chad. It's going to go straight to their exclusive streaming service, Disney+. Plus. And so again, it's another one of these wars of the streaming world versus traditional cinema chains. Disney movies are, are, are famous for being be able to bring lots and lots of families through their doors to come and watch the latest film, whether it's an animation or whether it's a live remake of one of the older ones, etc., etc. But Disney are going straight to their streaming service. I'm sure it's going to upset a lot of cinema chains, but it's going to give a lot more people a reason to pay that $7 a month or whatever it is to get that Disney Plus subscription so that they can watch the brand new Pixar film. Absolutely. You can completely right and uh, yeah I mean just at that price point of the Disney Plus I think it's $5.99 a month or £5.99 a month uh, quite compelling uh, you know to be able to have the the brand new released uh, soul uh, which I think is going to bring a lot more people onto the platform and potentially people who will stay when they see what else is offered on that platform I've really been enjoying watching movies at home at the moment I watched another one the other day on Netflix Enola Holmes kind of a follow-on to the, the Sherlock Holmes series um, and yeah just really interesting to to be able to I suppose watch these kind of films as they you know newly roll out in the comfort of your own home Chad, I can't shake this feeling that cinemas are dying. I can't yeah. shake the feeling. Like I, 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 I've been trying to think through it and trying to think through what is their use case. If I was the owner of a cinema chain right now, like how would I be thinking about my business? And I would be very worried. I, I, when I, I kind of think the writing is on the wall here. I don't know how cinemas are going to survive. I really mm. don't. Yeah, yeah. Scary stuff indeed. Well, let's move on, Barry, to our next segment. Stuff I found interesting. One thing to chat about this week, Barry, and it's something that we don't really chat about too often because I don't finish books too often, but I finally <laughs> finished my second book of this year based on my New Year's goals. I was supposed to be done through... <laughs> I was amazing, be... Chad. Amazing. Thank you very much. I'll take that round of applause. Um, I was supposed <laughs> to be done through 10 books at the moment, Barry, this year, uh, but I've only got through two. Nevertheless, we're going to chat about the second one, uh, which we kind of teased a few weeks ago we we kind of chatted a little bit about it and that is malcolm gladwell's talking to strangers have you heard anything of the book or is there any kind of intrigue around it yeah definitely i mean malcolm gladwell is one of the biggest authors in the world and i've got a lot yep. of respect for his writing i haven't read this particular one but i've heard i've heard mixed reviews about it. i've heard some yep. good and some bad um and so i'm very keen to hear what you thought chad and like some of the main concepts and what you got out of it yeah definitely so it was very different to anything i've ever read not that i've read a heck of a lot of stuff um but just because <laughs> of the fact that essentially what it was was case study after case study pieced together in a in a fairly random fashion, I would say. And then at the end, kind of bringing it together a little bit and really debriefing it over just like a page or two. Um, so I really felt in terms of like tying the narrative together, I, I get the, the mixed reviews. I understand that. At the same time, I think it it, it is a gripping read because of the case studies uh, that, that he's put through here. So 
does it feel like an actual book, like an actual you know novel type of thing? No, not really. It's just a series of case studies and ultimately food for thought. One of the kind of quotes that uh, somebody who's read the book uh, and you know is put on the front of the book kind of thing is is that it sits with you well after you've read it. And I think that is you know kind of a good quote. Uh, it, it, there are just a lot of things to think about here. But core to the book in my eyes and the way that I kind of read it is this idea of of trusting people for what they say this this default to truth idea and he deals with the both ends of the debate so if you do there's a chance that people will deceive you right there's a chance that you you could get hurt governments could have spies uh football coaches could be pedophiles and that's all real possibilities he he talks you through all of those uh, actual cases where that actually happened but the other end of the coin is if you don't trust people for what they say uh, ultimately there's a chance that you're going to be looking too deeply into things. You're going to be looking for this needle in the haystack. You're going to have this demeanor about you uh, that is that is really just so untrusting that you, you you basically can't operate effectively in this world at all. And if that happens, well, essentially you have cops who entice people to pull over to look for this needle in the haystack. And that is when society erodes and that is when life basically doesn't work as normal. Um, so I think that is quite an important uh, kind of debate to talk about. And Obviously, we've all been hurt, Barry. We've all, you know, had these things that have happened in our lives that 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 basically put this extra kind of veil of like shrouded. I don't even know the words to explain it. It just casts negative light on on every single sort of social interaction we have after that. Um, and ultimately, it's how you get back after that kind of thing. Do you find this an important discussion? It really is, Chad. It's it's kind of an essential dichotomy of humanity, right? Of the human experience is that the only way we're able to collaborate and communicate and kind of build these giant societies we've built is on some level of trust. Yep. At some at some point in society, you've got to be able to trust. Whether it's trusting that your money is going to be able to have the value that you think it does, whether it's yep. being able to trust someone is telling you the truth, whether it's being able to trust your your partner, your friends, your family. That kind of trust is what's built to the human society, and it's the only way we can actually survive as a collaborator otherwise we're all on our own mission and we'll we'll kill each other right so we have to have some sort of trust in order to make yeah. the society work but the other side of that coin is that when you start to live like that there are opportunities for malicious people or self-interested people or deceivers to take advantage of that good human nature yeah. and then it forces you to rethink that good human nature so it's like a back and forth thing and i think we've all gone through periods of life where we on either side of that debate as to what is the right way to do it and like you said, it's about trying to find that midpoint, trying to find that sweet spot where for the most part you are trusting what's happening around you, but you're still not naive to the fact that people can deceive you. You're not naive to what could be done behind the scenes if you're, if you're not being careful enough. Exactly. And so I think it's a, it's a debate around like, do you look for the good in people or are you skeptical of human nature and you're worried about what's going to happen to you? And that really does say a lot about your character. It says a lot about what experiences you've had in the past and like you say, who's hurt you in the past and yep. what's happened in your life. Um, and it's an interesting debate because there is no right answer here. It, it's all about con contextualizing what you're dealing with. Obviously, trust differs depending on who you're talking to and where you live and kind of what experience and what yeah. job you're in and all these different factors. And so I think the case study version of this is the right way to look at it because everything yeah. is so different yeah. depending on your circumstances, right? Completely agree. And, uh, you know, some of the other reviews I've read about the book talk about some of the actual judgments that he reached within each case study and didn't like the kind of the way that he handled that. Uh, some people obviously, you know, differing with uh, with his opinion ultimately um and i suppose that is always going to be the case uh you know when you do have to write something like this you're never gonna uh, you know please every single person ultimately um but like i said that's the kind of core message that i took from it and some people will take a different core message from it um but nevertheless i think two other important kind of secondary topics that he addressed within dealing with strangers and and just people i guess is the idea firstly of transparency that is that Essentially, the facial expressions that you're giving me, Barry, adequately reflect the things that you're feeling, the things that you're saying. And ultimately, the, the lesson to be learned there is some people are transparent, uh, willingly or unwillingly, and other people just are not. You get the odd character who might be sad but might be smiling, who might be, you know, absolutely traumatized uh, but still saying silly things or, or acting in a goofy way. Um, and so, again, unpacking some cases where this has happened, where people have been sent to prison uh, on this basis just because of the fact that, you know, their transparency doesn't match 
maybe the majority of society. And I found that to be quite interesting as well. That's fascinating. Body language is such a crucial part of human communication. Yep. And like you say, it's, it, there really is a spectrum here. I mean, if you, th if you think of psychopaths who will show zero empathy or kind of zero connection for their body language to what's actually happened, yep. that's like the extreme version. And you watch an interview with a psychopath and it's terrifying to watch because you can't understand why there's zero transparency and why yep. there is no kind of indicators or, or little, little uh, nods to what is happening in that person's brain. And you can go all the way to the other side of the spectrum of someone who's highly emotional, highly like wears their heart on their sleeve. You can see exactly what they're going through. They can't hide anything. And there's a thousand different variations in between. And part of the human experience and part of getting to know people is trying to understand how transparent are you, right? And yeah. how much are you hiding? Like, are you being authentic and genuine? Are you being vulnerable in front of people? Are you putting some sort of mask on? And again, it's all contextual. Um, and I think for us, I think as individuals, it's important to try and figure out like where is our transparency along the spectrum? Like for you, how genuine are you being in your interactions? Yeah. Because that will impact your, your relationships, your, your career success, the way you feel about yourself as a human being. It's an interesting exercise in self-reflection trying to figure out where am I on the scale? Yeah, definitely. And I think one worth doing, certainly. So there's all of that, Barry. But on top of that, you also get the cultural differences. So what is transparent? What does transparent look like? And depending on where you are in the world and what culture you're in and what tribe you're talking to, ultimately, uh, that might look a different way as well. So I found that quite interesting, too. The last kind of secondary feature that I, I picked out of this book was the idea of coupling. And that is also that essentially circumstances, places, environments are related. So the person who you're talking to, the person who is in front of you, is in some way a product of their current environment, current circumstance. And he basically looks at the case studies of suicides and crimes and, and basically proves that those two are, are coupled. Um, so as soon as you take a person out of a particular city or kind of remove an available suicide uh, measure, you immediately see the rates drop down. And so to apply that on a wider basis in your day-to-day -day interactions with individuals, um, to kind of just think about that as well, think about how their current environment might be inferring on the way that they are communicating with you, I think is also an interesting dynamic that I maybe haven't thought about before. It's so, so important. Our, our environment shapes who we are. And that environment is our physical environment. So it's like the place we live and the house we live in and all that sort of thing. But it's also those relationships we keep and the people we yep. spend a lot of time with and the influences and the peers that we look up to, et cetera, et cetera. So we don't often realize, like you say, how much our environment is influencing how we feel, how we think, what we do. But it really does. Yep. If you are only friends with like triathletes, you're going to become a fit person. It's going to be very hard for you to keep lazy if you're only friends with triathletes athletes yeah. right they have some sort of influence on you whether whether you like it or not and in the same way if your environment is kind of negative and pessimistic then that's likely what you're going to become yeah. and so we ha actually have more control over that than we realize right you can make a choice to move cities to change countries to change friends to look for a better environment for yourself yeah. to give yourself the best possible chance of becoming the person that you want to be and that kind of mobility that kind of being that, that ability to create your environment and craft it around the kind of values that matter to you that's a very underrated piece of personal development and it's something we all should be thinking more about to try and craft the best environment possible that makes us the person that we want to be because we can't just rely on willpower and discipline because we all know that doesn't last all the time yep. we need our environment to kind of help us in those moments where we don't have the discipline to do what we want to do we then want the social pressure the environmental pressure the kind of the play the crafting of that space to do the work for us Completely agreed. And uh, yeah, I think that's that's an important message, Barry, that you can actually change your environment. Um, but also just, I suppose, in, in terms of in your interactions, if you can uh, kind of put yourself in someone else's shoes as well and, and try and think of the things that, that could be affecting the way that they're currently acting or, or the things that they're currently doing or saying, uh, also really important as well. So I would definitely recommend that you read the book. Again, it has mixed reviews, but I certainly think it's a thought-provoking. And uh, I guess if any of the things that we read has one kind of attribute, Barry, that's the one that we're looking for. Uh, does it you know, make you think a bit and, and does it ultimately change the way you live your life in a little bit? Um, so yeah, I definitely do recommend that. Shall we move on to the next segment? Let's look ahead, Chad. Looking ahead. We're going to talk one more time about 
artificial intelligence and the effect that it has on photography. Now, this time I'm talking about professional photography in the full-on sense. So I was basically following a YouTuber who ultimately is a professional wedding photographer. And uh, he was basically taking us through his process of what they call culling. So that is you take basically, let's say, 100, 1,000 photos, 2,000 photos, and ultimately you only deliver, let's say, 100 to your client. It's this process of narrowing down the photos, culling the ones you don't want, and ultimately, you know, picking the ones that you do. And that is quite a big process. For a lot of people, that takes a heck of a lot of time. There's a lot of uncertainty sometimes when you're busy doing it. Um, you know, ultimately, you're trying to pick the photo that your client is going to like the most. And there's this AI tool, which is called Narrative Select, uh, which I found fascinating. So it's in beta, and he was busy doing a demo um, essentially during this live stream, which I quite enjoyed. And basically, it solves this need for, for culling. So what it does is it has this AI algorithm scan through all your photos and ultimately pick out the faces in each of them and ultimately show two very easy to see indicators. The first one, Barry, being that you can see whether the face is actually in focus and the second one showing you whether the people's eyes are actually open. Now, it sounds so simple and I know we've spoken about AI. We've spoken about it scanning whether people are wearing masks in big cities with like millions of people. This is a very simple use case of it, but really, really useful. This is awesome, Chad. Forget <laughs> professionals. I need this, dude. I need this. I mean, I think we've all had that experience because we have this infinite digital storage. We can now take as many photos as we want. Exactly. But then the headache of going through all of them and trying to figure out which ones we're going to post to Instagram and yep. which ones we're going to get rid of is, is quite a mission. I had friends over yesterday and they brought their little kid who was about three months old and we took hundreds of photos <laughs> of this little kid. And then I had to sit on the couch for like an hour afterwards figuring yep. out which ones are the best ones and getting rid of the rest. <laughs> so this sounds exactly. like a really, really cool use of the technology, Chad. And it's, qu it's quite exciting to see. I think a lot of this, the kind of curation and the culling, like you say, is quite important in, in any kind of creative field. If you think about the amount of mistakes we make in across the pond and how much we have to cull, right, when we get things <laughs> wrong. Same thing in photos. You, not every photo is going to look great. And it's being true. able to automate kind of the, 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 the bottom 80% would be really, really cool. And so I'm, I'm excited about this, chat. I need to go check this out. Yeah, so I hope it goes through its beta phase fairly quickly. Um, at the moment, you can basically put your email address there down and uh, they essentially are picking who they decide to roll it out to, <laughs> let, test it essentially. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's definitely, definitely quite exciting. Always with these kinds of things, the question on what they're going to price it as, um, because it does just serve that one purpose. And I suppose depending on how many photo shoots you do in a week, uh, that ultimately you know depends on whether you're going to get value from, from it. Um, the efficiencies that you get in terms of actual time saved. Um, but yeah, I definitely think it's a really worthwhile tool. And uh, I'm really happy to see all of this AI stuff rolling out uh, more and more and more. Barry, what is the one thing you wanted to chat about this week? Yeah, I wanted to chat about self-driving cars, Chad, and specifically the company Waymo, which is part of Alphabet's kind of holding company, which is the old Google, right? And it's one of the most advanced self-driving companies in the world. I think that they've been doing it for the longest, and they've really been advanced. It's basically Google's best engineers in self-driving, kind of trying to come up with this autonomous vehicle that can get around the world without human driver. And they had to pause their operations throughout COVID for obvious reasons, because the world was going crazy. But they've recently... <laughs> resumed their stuff and they've started doing uh, actual trips again and okay. so in Arizona in a small 50 mile uh, area of land you can call a Waymo car with zero human in it, no human backup no driver, ways. and you can do a fully autonomous kind of lift sharing ride anywhere in that 50 mile radius. <laughs> and they are doing this for real, like you can go on the app and you can do it if you live in that area. They've got 400 vehicles doing it at the moment, wow. and the cost is comparable to an Uber ride, Chad. So you're not gonna be paying anything crazy for it. It's like a normal Uber ride, and there's no human driver. That's insane. I had no idea that it was rolled out in real life. And 50 miles is, is quite a big radius, actually. And the fact that you said 400 vehicles, that's a heck of a lot. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's exciting. I definitely want to go and look at some demos of this. Um, I suppose that is one of the benefits of the U.S. being structured in the way that it is, I suppose, with all the various different states and each one has different rules. And ultimately, they can decide, uh, you know, what they want to do. So obviously, this particular area has granted approval for this kind of trial, and I think that's fantastic. I'm really excited to see, essentially, the, the rates of, of accidents. I guess that's the biggest question we have, <laughs> right? Uh, because on yeah. these roads is going to be human drivers as well. Um, and yeah, I'm really 
excited to see how this works. Chad, if you were in Arizona right now, would you feel comfortable getting into that car and giving it a go? Or what, what, what would you do if you were in that position? I'd probably wait a week or two and watch the news. <laughs> um, but if a week or two goes by, Barry, and it's still all good, I'm more than happy at that stage, which I know might sound ridiculous. Um, but if there's a week or two of no bad news and there's been you know hundreds or thousands of trips that have happened, I'm comfortable. How about you? Chad, I'm all for this technology. I'm very <laughs> excited about it. And so I would get in that car immediately if I could. Okay. Um, I'm hoping that, that the safety is, is done carefully. And I'm assuming it's not going to go crazy speeds. But but who knows? I think I think it's it's indicative of the self-driving revolution that people have been talking about for the last couple of years. And it, it feels like it's getting closer and closer. Mm. I honestly think that our children, I, I'm not sure if they're going to drive unless it's for fun. I think it's going to be a very big revolution around the world if we get this thing right. And it's going to change the whole transport industry. So I'm very excited about that maybe i should be more aware of the risks and probably i should be um but i'm just excited about the technology and i'm, I'm keen to see what happens in in arizona man that's a crazy thought and i think you're right actually i completely do uh you know we're talking about electric cars and how important those are but maybe we're missing something maybe we're missing the idea of driving a car ourselves at all um which is fascinating man technology let's move on <laughs> develop and grow so on Develop and Grow this week, Chad, I wanted to chat about a concept that I don't know if I've brought up on the podcast. And if I haven't, I'm surprised I haven't because I <laughs> really believe in it so much. And it's a concept called effective altruism. Okay. And it's, it would take th three episodes to explain the details <laughs> of what it is. But let me try and like break it down to its simplest format. The idea is if you're trying to do good in the world, right? Say, say one of your goals in life is to make as much impact as possible. There is a lot of good causes and charities and donating. You can do lots of good to by giving your money away to people who need it more than you do, right? And a lot of us do this, right? We might see a cause that tugs on our heartstrings. We might donate some money to them, knowing that's yeah. going to do some good somewhere else in the world. Effective altruism kind of looks at that donating and looks at that kind of giving away money and giving away time and resources and tries to make it more rational and tries to let you know that there's way more good you could do with your money if you take the emotion out of it and you okay. do what's actually been proven to save people's lives. So for example, in, in, in the world today, lots and lots of money goes towards cancer, right? Because cancer is this kind of very ethereal, everyone knows someone who's got cancer. It's yeah. a very, very big part of human life. And so a lot of money is going on trying to find cures for cancer. At the same stage, malaria kills way more people than cancer, and it's mm. way easier to solve by buying very cheap malaria nets for people in Central Africa and in Asia and that sort of thing. But for some reason, it's not as sexy as a cause, it's not as well marketed, and therefore the amount of money going to malaria is very different to the amount of money going to cancer. And so the idea of effective altruism is that we should be shifting our obligations to those things that do more good on a per dollar basis. Okay. Very controversial, very kind of difficult decision, and there's lots of interesting philosophy inside of it. But what I'm trying to get at is that I, I'm a big believer in this movement, and I've been in part of a Stanford fellowship over the last couple of weeks who have been okay. meeting on a weekly basis with people around the world who are talking about this concept and, and what it means. And it's just been a reminder for me, Chad, of how selfish I've been over the last year or two, right? Okay. As the world has got a bit crazy and things have gone a bit, bit nuts and I've had a difficult year personally, I've realized how much of my focus has been inward about what matters to me and what problems I'm dealing with and kind of all the things that are going on in my own life. And this, these, these meetings and these discussions I've been having have just been a reminder for me that it often is a really, really good idea to look outwards for a bit and to kind of focus mm. your attention on other people because that act of giving, that act of service, that act of like being more selfless is actually good for us as well in a weird way because it makes us feel more fulfilled and more meaningful and it's a, it's a really good way to get perspective on our lives and make us grateful for what we have ourselves. And so I just wanted to share that reminder with all of us that maybe after 2020 has been a crazy year where everyone's worried about themselves, Maybe it's time to start looking at what, who can we help? Can we look out, like turn our focus a little bit and see if we can do some good in the world? And that could actually be good for your morale and your general psychology. Nice, Barry. I love that. And uh, it's really cool that you're part of so many of these causes and groups and fellowships and all that kind of <laughs> stuff. I really do you know, love that you get involved in all that kind of stuff. And it does sound like a very interesting theory because, I, I mean, I suppose, you know, theoretically, if let's say there is a quantifiable level of ultimate like risk with malaria, once everyone devotes their resources to that particular cause, there will be a level at which you say, okay, 
that is no longer such a, a risk anymore. And then you move on to the next cause that, like you say, will make a massive difference in the world. Um, and so I think it definitely, definitely does have its merits. Um, but but certainly just the wider message of, you know, not just always looking inwards, actually looking at your communities, looking at the, the world at large and seeing how you can actually make a difference. I myself am incredibly selfish. I you know, have, like, just like you, Barry, this year not really stopped to think about too many other people um, because we're all, you know, trying to keep our heads above water uh, in this crazy time. But that doesn't justify it. That doesn't make it okay. Um, so, yeah, certainly a, an important message. Um, and, yeah, glad you brought it up. Yeah, definitely. I think for all of us, especially if you're living in a first world country, if you're listening to this podcast or watching this podcast right now, you're in a very fortunate position. Yeah. And the best way to realize that and get that perspective is to try and help someone who's in a less fortunate position. We have over a billion people in this world living under the poverty line, living a life that we can't even imagine. We can't yeah. even begin to imagine what kind of life they're living. And by giving away a tiny portion of our well-earned income, we can really make a difference in the lives of other people. And so I hope, I, I want to bring it up more. I'm sure throughout the fellowship we'll have yep. more to say in, in future episodes. But it really is a, just a reminder for me and hopefully for all of us that with so little sacrifice from our part, we can change the lives of other people mm -hmm. who live in much worse conditions than us. And even, even if you want to look at it selfishly, it's going to make you feel better. It's going to give you some fulfillment and meaning in your life to know you made an actual impact that's very different to how many likes you got in your Instagram post compared to the actual lives you can save through very, very minimal contributions to very effective causes. And that, that I think, is a really powerful idea. And I hope that I can start talking about it more and getting, getting more people thinking about this sort of thing because it has such an influence on the way that I think. Definitely. Well, I welcome that with wide open arms, Barry. I'm happy to... Have to chat about this a lot more because I think uh, we definitely can be doing a lot more. I think a lot of the times, you know, we don't actively look for what we could be doing. We we ultimately, uh, you know, hide behind this veil of it's too hard. Like, how do I even know what to do? There's just so many things that I could do. Where do where's my money going to be best spent? But I think if we do give it a bit of thought, like you say, Barry, I think we'll certainly be able to rip that veil away and start to make a real difference in this world. Well, that brings us to the end of another jam-packed episode of Across the Pond. I apologize for rambling on the Apple stuff. I just get too <laughs> excited, Barry. I don't even know if it was a you know comprehensible piece. Never apologize for passion, Chad. <laughs> we are all about enthusiasm on Across the Pond. The reason you listen to us is because we are so passionate about these topics. And yeah. yeah, never apologize for that. I think that there's a lot of cool stuff. And that's the whole point of the show is to kind of bring the things that we're excited about and hopefully you're excited about too if you're listening right now. So Chad, I've really enjoyed this episode. Me too, Barry. As always, do hit subscribe if you're not subscribed to us already on whatever platform you are listening to us on. And as always, check out some of our other social media pages. We are on Twitter at Across underscore podcast, Instagram at Across the Pondcast and Facebook Across the Pond Podcast. That's all for today. We'll see you next week. Pond, 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 across the pond, with Barry and Chad.